You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Has Jesus changed your life? Has he transformed you? I want to ask the same question a little bit differently. Is your life any different because you say that you follow Jesus than it would be if you didn't? If someone from the outside were to look at your life, are there any qualities about it that would make them say, I know that Jay is a Christian because this is who Jay was before and here's who Jay is now. Or I know that Adam's a Christian because he treats me a particular way. Right? That's kind of the evidence of the question, right? It's really our, our living testimony. And the reason that I'm beginning by asking these questions of us today is that we are going to read one of the most famous Sunday school stories of all time today. And it's a story about a meeting between Jesus and a man that radically transformed his life. This Bible story is a story that most of us know probably because of the song that might even be more famous than the story. And so today, we're gonna begin by singing together. Is that okay? I need your help. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little... Yes, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, you come down for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Now, for those of you that did not grow up going to Sunday school, you're all wondering to yourself, what in the world is going on here? What kind of crazy cult songs do these people know? We got Zacchaeus and he's wee and we got a tree and all this stuff here. You know, that was, that was some good singing. Uh, the song definitely catches the main points of the story, but I want to I go to the text. So if you have your Bible with you, would you open it to the Gospel of Luke? And we're going to begin reading in the 19th chapter. I'm going to read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10 today. Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was a wee little man, <laughs> but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Any short people here today? Amen, somebody. We'll, get, we'll, t we'll talk about you in a second, okay? So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, 
I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I love the story of Zacchaeus. This is a story of a short person's innovation. Now, I know I'm not particularly, particularly short. And at 6'1", some people would actually consider me tall. But let's be honest, short people have a tough lot in life. They just do. Um, do you remember the Randy Newman song, Short People? It's terribly offensive. It's actually so offensive that many short people love it because it kind of says out loud some of their fears that they're, that they're worried about, uh, um, that, that people are perceiving of them. Uh, I just want you to know today that if you're insecure about your height, if you would consider yourself short, you need to know that one of the morals of this story is that Jesus parties with short people, okay? You just need to know that. Furthermore, I have it uh, from a reliable source that Fred Craddock, who was a very famous preacher in the 20th century, one of the greatest preachers in North American history, he was himself short and felt that although the text says that Zacchaeus was short, Jesus was probably short himself. Think about it. If Jesus were tall and Zacchaeus were short, you know, Zacchaeus could probably still have a shot at seeing Jesus, right? through a crowd. But if Jesus is short, you know, and Zacchaeus is short, there's no way he's seeing Jesus through the crowd, you know? Furthermore, if you remember in Isaiah, the passage of the suffering servant, what does Isaiah tell us about Jesus? He had no beauty or majesty. There was nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him, right? And so it's probably safe to say that Jesus, a first century Jew, was probably also himself not very tall, okay? So I'm gonna stop talking about short people, but I just wanna begin by making this note. And if this is helpful to you, just hold on to it. If this does nothing for you, just let it go, okay? But Jesus prioritizes and parties with short people. Amen, somebody. All right. Uh, this story is a story about three things. It's a story about perception. It's a story about an invitation and it's a story about salvation. Perception, invitation, and salvation. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you probably know some of the important biographical information about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, which means he worked for the Romans. And the Romans were the foreign government that was occupying Palestine at that time. They're, 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 what they understood to be Israel their homeland, Galilee, Judea, it was occupied by the Romans. And the Romans reminded the Jews that they were in charge through their constant military presence and through their taxation. So Zacchaeus, a tax collector, was perceived by the Jews around him as an accomplice in the system of Roman tyranny, okay? he was probably not the most popular guy in Jericho. And Jericho, we understand, just historically speaking, was a significant economic center of the time. It was a significant center of trade. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector there in the town. 
So this short, not so popular guy wanted to see Jesus, the popular young rabbi who was passing through town. So Zacchaeus did what short people do. He innovates, right? He finds a tree and he climbs it. And Jesus does what Jesus often does throughout the gospels. He notices Zacchaeus. I told you this was a story about perception. Jesus noticed Zacchaeus. He notices him and he invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house. He says, hey, come on down from that tree, man. My entourage and I, we're coming over to your place. All right, this is what Jesus does. This story is about perception. It's about Jesus's ability to see. He looks up in a tree and Jesus sees a guy who is afraid of getting beat up by everyone in the crowd. And Jesus says to that man, you're the person here that I'm most interested in being with. You are the person here that I'm most interested in seeing. How do you think the people in the crowd at that moment felt about Jesus? This actually takes some nerve for Jesus to do. Jesus, at least as demonstrated by this story, is someone who fundamentally did not care what other people thought about him. Jesus was not trying to get friendly with the most popular socialites in Jericho. Jesus's life was not oriented toward the popular opinion. Jesus's life was oriented toward the unpopular individual. Did you get that? Jesus was not primarily interested in how he was perceived by others, but he had trained his own perception to be keenly aware of those who were not seen by others. And actually, this is not just, this, this claim is not just bolstered by this story, but you can find this all throughout the gospels. Do you remember the story of Nathaniel in John 1? Jesus says to Nathaniel in calling him to be his disciple, he says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how in the world do you know who I am? And Jesus said, before Philip called out to you, I saw you, I perceived you under the fig tree. You remember the poor widow in Mark chapter 12 who brings two small coins and puts them in the temple? What does Jesus say to his disciples? Hey, I want you to perceive this. I want you to look at her. That woman, though she gave a very small amount, she gave more than anyone here because she gave all that she had, right? Jesus had a perception to perceive people that other people missed. The woman who touched Jesus in the crowd who had been bleeding for 12 years, right? Uh, he says, somebody touched me, I sensed it. I'm, he, he was very perceptive. And his disciples said, what are you talking about? There are so many people pressing on you. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. No, I'm telling you what I'm perceiving. I'm telling you that to which I'm attuned. Or think about the, the demoniac boy that was giving the disciples all, all sorts of a difficult time. Jesus says to them, hey, bring that boy to me. Do you wanna know if you're becoming more and more like Jesus? If you are, a marker of becoming more and more like Jesus is that you would be someone that notices those who are left out. People who are, 
who are being shaped in the image of Jesus, notice those that no one else esteems. They notice others that other people think are not worth noticing. If you have the perception of Jesus, you are someone who sees the others that others overlook. Does that make sense? Jesus has a particular kind of perception. His life was not oriented toward the popular opinion. No, Jesus's life was oriented toward noticing the unpopular individual. The story is about perception. And it is also about an invitation. So Jesus invites himself over to the house of Zacchaeus. Uh, one of the commentators I read uh, said, funny, nobody ever says anything about what Mrs. Zacchaeus thought about a sudden party with an entourage, you know? <laughs> I don't know if they had cell phones. I don't know if he sent a runner ahead. Hey, put the wigs on the grill because we got a big party coming, you know? I don't know. They, yeah, they were Jewish. They ate chicken. They ate chicken. Yeah, they would have had wigs. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but it was that invitation. It was that feeling, that experience of Zacchaeus that made all the difference in Zacchaeus's life. Jesus does not lead Zacchaeus in a prayer of salvation. Jesus does not explain to Zacchaeus the Romans road. Jesus doesn't even convince Zacchaeus of the fact that he's the Messiah, the son of God. He simply engages an outsider with a feeling of love and acceptance. And that's enough. That pushes Zacchaeus over the edge. That, that invitation fundamentally changes Zacchaeus's life. I wonder today, do you have any Zacchaeuses in your life? Do you have any people that you perceive maybe that you don't like? <laughs> do you have anyone in your community that you think to yourself, you know, I don't know that I would ever want to hang out with that person. I just wonder, what if that person has never known the warmth and security that Zacchaeus found for the first time in the invitation of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? You know, Jesus models in this story a form of evangelism that I don't know that we talk about much or enough in the church. This is Jesus's approach to both evangelism and discipleship. It's always an invitation to a relationship. Did you get that? Jesus's approach to evangelism, to discipleship, is always an invitation to a relationship. How does Jesus seek and save the lost? Through an invitation. Evangelism for Jesus, at least as we find it in the gospels, is not about indoctrination. It's about an invitation. Personally, just in my lifetime, I've grown suspicious of people who call themselves evangelists and brag about the amount of conversions that they've accumulated, folks that they've evangelized in their lives. Yet if you look at their lives, you would quickly recognize that they don't have many lasting discipling relationships. For Jesus, evangelism and discipleship happen at the same time. You know, we've got these gifts tests that we have ministers take. You know, are you an evangelist or are you a discipleship person? Jesus would be like, what are you talking about, man? 
You can't be one or the other. It happens at the same time. You know, this is, discipleship is, is a process. It's an, it's, it's an invitation. It's a relationship, you know? So how does Jesus's life, or how does Zacchaeus's life change? You might be asking. What's the marker of his conversion if there's no prayer of salvation? It's right here. The encounter with Jesus fundamentally changes Zacchaeus's relationship with others. I told you that this story was about perception. It was about an invitation, but it's also about salvation, right? Jesus says explicitly, he says, salvation has come to this man's house. The reason that we know that salvation has come, the evidence of salvation for Jesus is that when, he has, when Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus, all of a sudden he starts thinking differently about the relationships in his life, right? There's two groups of people that he thinks about. Immediately he says, Jesus, I'm going to start giving my money to the poor. Conversion for Jesus completely reorients one's life toward the poor. That's the first thing, right? And the second thing, the second thing is uh, conversion, salvation for Zacchaeus looks like rethinking his professional relationships, right? So there's this perception of Zacchaeus that because he was a tax collector, he just cheated everybody. He took too much money. He added too many fees. But actually, as we read the story, we don't find that Zacchaeus repents of cheating people. What he says to Jesus is, I'm actually gonna go back and do a self audit. I'm going to go back, I'm going to re-examine my life and I'm going to ask myself the honest, hard question, have I cheated anybody? Does that make sense? I think I learned this story growing up that Zacchaeus was fundamentally a cheat because he was a tax collector. We don't have that information, at least from this account in Luke's gospel. But what we do find is that when Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus, immediately he becomes someone who is concerned with mindful living. Zacchaeus becomes someone who is concerned with mindful living. Have you ever found yourself in a rut of autopilot in your life? Amen, somebody. <laughs> I've got my schedule down so good the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. And you know, I know on the days that I can press snooze and I know the days that I can't, you know? What's your routine? What's your nine to five? I don't know that there's anything sinful about living a life on autopilot. In fact, sometimes it's easier to live a life on autopilot, right? To, in some ways to numb the pain, to not have to think about or to process. But one of the things that I recognize is Jesus encounters people in the New Testament is that when they, when they meet him, they just start thinking differently about their life, about their relationship with others, about their relationship with the world. Jesus, in the story of Zacchaeus, he calls Zacchaeus to a life of mindful living. I don't know what your lot in life is. I don't know what your vocation is. Yet, I think that it would help us to reframe the way that we think about salvation in North America today. 
What if salvation for us was determined by how our relationship with Jesus affected our relationship with others? What if? I wanna talk a little bit about salvation. I may have told you this sometime before about my conversion experience. Do you, have a, do you have a conversion experience? Do you have a moment that you can look back to and you would say, that's when I was saved? Did, anybody, do you have that moment? Do we, do we teach kind of a moment of conversion? People talk about a moment of conversion. My moment of conversion was when I was six years old. I was at a camp meeting and there was an evangelist, a children's evangelist who was there and he told all of us five and six and seven year olds how terrible of sinners that we were. And that because we were t- terrible sinners, we were going to die and f- when we died, we were gonna go to hell and burn forever. He told us this, you know. Well, I don't know about you, but I was sitting on the edge of my seat. Like, dude, you got my attention. I'm young, but I'm thinking about the end. You know what I'm saying? And he says, now, now, now. The thing is, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so if you come down to the front right now and ask Jesus into your heart, you won't burn in hell forever. Well, I said, that seems very simple and very logical. And so I ran down to the front and I got saved. I might've even gotten saved multiple times that week just to make sure, you know? <laughs> and, so I, and so I got saved, you know, and, and everybody, you know, everybody there, they celebrated it, you know, and they, they added that number to the number of kids that got saved that week, you know? Well, as I've gotten older, there are a couple of things about that experience that have just struck me as odd. The first one is, as a six-year-old who grew up in a, you know, relatively Christian, not relatively, very Christian home, I don't really know what, what kind of sins I could have committed. I mean, at that point in my life, probably the worst thing I had done is punched my sister, honestly. I mean, I told some lies to my parents. I you know, put my hand in the cookie jar one too many times. But I don't know. But as I've gotten older and as I've you know, interviewed people in my office who are talking about real like, sins of depravity, I mean, people that are, people that are lost in, in affairs or, or uh, uh, addictions or, or things that have really you know, absolutely consumed their life, I think to myself, wow, as a six-year-old, honestly, objectively, I don't know that I had really done that much wrong, right? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Jonathan, I can't believe that you're teaching this. Romans clearly says that all have sinned. I understand that. And the point that Paul is trying to make there is, listen, Jews, you think that you're good because you are a child of Abraham, because you're Jewish. And the point that Paul's trying to make to Jewish people is, hey, folks, just because we're Jewish doesn't mean that we're, you know, any different than the rest of them. All of us have sinned, okay? That's what Paul is doing in Romans, okay? So we, we that, that's the part of it that's kind of odd to me is just this idea that, you know, for children that we're, you know, teaching them that they're really, really dark sinners. Um, there, there's also the, there's also the, the idea that, that Jesus, we never find him in the gospels kind of indoctrinating children with this idea that they're completely depraved or they're completely sinful. Because Jesus understood that children uh, aren't fully cognitively developed. I mean, he was a cognitive psychologist before we even had him, you know? He re- even Jesus had a bar mitzvah, you know? He recognized and the Jewish people recognized that as people develop, they, they grow, it's, it's, there needs to be some maturity, some time to really have a decision of, of turning towards Jesus, right? And this, this idea, Jesus also, he never tried to convert children, you know, scaring them from, from the fires of hell, but Jesus actually 
really never tried to convert anyone to a verbal confession of him as Lord by scaring them from the fires of hell. Anytime Jesus talked about the fires of hell, he was telling religious people, you don't, you don't get it. You're not oriented toward the poor and you're not concerned with the affairs of other people. For Jesus, conversion and salvation were about how you are living towards others. This is why Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is identical to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you wanna know if your relationship is right with God? Examine your relationships with other people. This is so fundamental to the New Testament. And somehow we are, have convinced ourselves that if we teach little children that they're rotten sinners and that they pray a prayer, they can grow up and live however they want and they're gonna be good when they die. And I think that this is something that we need to kind of put out of our collective memory and understanding is, is that when Jesus talks about salvation in the New Testament, he talks about people, he, he talks about it in a way that salvation is this force, is this thing, it's this teshuva, it's this returning to God, it's this reorientation of my life towards other people. Does that make sense? And so the evidence that salvation comes to Zacchaeus' house is not that he makes some confession of Jesus as the Messiah, but is that he realizes, that he realizes to himself, wow, I have been living for myself. I have been, everything that I've been doing has been concerned with my own affairs. And Jesus says that salvation has come to him and that he's truly a child of Abraham. Why? Because he reorients his life towards others. As Christians in the 21st century, I am growing more and more convinced that no one, maybe not no one, there will always be individuals maybe that could be persuaded by an intellectual argument. The masses are not going to be persuaded to join Christianity by intellectual arguments. But our attractiveness in the world and the evidence that Christ has transformed our relationships with others is the thing that is going to be the, 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 the attractive essence, the aroma of Christ, as Paul says, that is going to attract the world to the church in the days that are ahead. And the reason that I love the story of Zacchaeus is because I really do think that in many ways it's, it's a story that for us, it, it, it kind of contains the gospel. This idea that God comes to us, he perceives those people that other people don't think are very important. He invites us in right? And by virtue of just being with, with us, shows us a different way, shows us how we ought to live. And I, I, wanna, I wanna challenge you today with this thought. If Jesus were to come to your house, would you change anything? If Jesus were to walk into your house, are there things that you wouldn't want him to see? If Jesus were to come to your workplace, would there be anything about your relationships with others in that space that you would maybe change for the day so that Jesus you know, wouldn't see what was really going on? If the answer to any of those questions is yes at all, do you know what salvation is for you? To change, to turn, to repent to live in step with the spirit, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, to orient your life 
towards Jesus. That's salvation. You know, Jesus, he says at the, at the very end of this passage, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, I want to challenge you personally with the thought, would your life change at all if Jesus came to your house? If Jesus came to your place of work? I also want to challenge you to think to yourself, are there people that I am choosing not to see? Because in the Great Commission, what Jesus says is he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And what is Jesus's approach to discipleship but to offer an invitation? Peter, John, leave your nets. Come, follow me. Philip, Nathaniel, I see you. Come, follow me. Zacchaeus, you wee little man up in that tree. Come on down from there. I want to come to your house. Are we people of an invitation? Are we people that invite others into life with us? Are we people that see the marginalized, that see the neglected, that see the outcast? The evidence that we are following the Jesus of this story, the Jesus of this scripture, would be that we are those things. Amen? Amen. Let's stand today. Do you want to pray today? If you do, feel free to come now. Maybe there would be some like me that would say, you know, I prayed a prayer a long time ago, but I, uh, I need to confess. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Lord Jesus, you prayed for your people that, that God would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that by this story of this little man, that you would convict your people today, that you would transform us, that you would reorient us, orient us towards others. That we would be your hands and your feet and your eyes and your mouth in the world this week. Would you transform us by your spirit, we pray. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. May God bless you this week. Be people of perception of invitation. Live out your salvation this week. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.